Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 14, we read. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing where it ought not let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight be not in winter. For in those days... There will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. In chapter 13, Jesus has conducted a very personal briefing with Peter, James, John, and Andrew. It concerns the subject of the end times. The subject is also the temple and the tribulation. Jesus will give two broad predictions, and then he will present two mind-blowing parables. Jesus predicts the total destruction of the Jewish temple and then points to a series of signs, signals that precede the coming kingdom. Jesus has predicted spiritual deception and false messiahs in verses four through six, international global conflict in verses seven and eight. Earthquakes and famines at the end of verse 13. Political and family persecution in verse 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Global evangelism in verse 10. The supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit in verse 11. Now Jesus will turn our attention to a series of events that are meant to be chilling. He speaks of the desecration of the temple in verses 14 through 16. Unprecedented horrors in verses 17 through 20. Jesus will speak of the false rumors of Christ's return in verses 21 through 23. Fearful celestial phenomenon that include the sun, the moon, the stars in verses 24 and 25. And then Jesus will speak of his second coming, the gathering of Israel in verses 26 and 27. But our focus, the desecration of the temple, look at verse 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus will now give his disciples, Peter, James, John, Andrew, the sign, the signal, the identifying event that marks the midpoint in the future tribulation. 
He advises them and draws attention to the abomination of desolation. Note what Jesus' own words spoken of by Daniel, the prophet. In order to understand the text, we have to understand what Daniel has said. Like I said earlier, I have three different teachings on Daniel chapter 9, which is available to you. So all we can do is just look at it very briefly. But I do want you to turn to Daniel chapter 9. And beginning in verse 24, we read 70 sevens. The word in the Hebrew language is a week, but it means a corporate gathering of a seven. We have words like that in our language. We have the word dozen. When I say, hey, there's a dozen donuts that you can take home with you. You know how many a dozen is. It's a twelve. If I say a score, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. It means a twenty. And so Daniel says there are seventy sevens that are determined for your people. Whose people? Daniel's people. And for your holy city. There's only one holy city. It's Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Mashiach, Nagib, Messiah, the Prince, There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city, the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. In brief, a prince, a prince shall come. Actually, there are two princes, Mashiach Nagib, the prince who is the offering, and then a second prince, a false prince, a pretender, a person who claims to be the prince of peace, but he is not the prince of peace, a prince that shall come. He shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. He shall make it desolate. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 11 The two phrases are combined once again. And from the time that the daily sacrifice, that is the sacrifice in the temple, shall be taken away and the abomination that makes desolate set up shall be 1,290 days. In order to understand the text, we have to explain at least the meaning of a couple of words. The word abomination. The word abomination is the strongest word that the Hebrew language has to describe that which is disgusting, that which is detestable, that which is reprehensible. And it was usually a word that was used 
on any object that had as its primary function to serve as an object of worship or veneration. And so the Bible has a series of words to describe idols, detestable, repugnant, disgusting. Desolation here probably means to make empty, to make void, to make useless. It's to render a human population no longer sustainable. We might think of it as the act whereby the temple of necessity must be abandoned because God is so disgusted. And so look again in Mark chapter 13 in verse 14 where it says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not. That expression means standing in the place where it ought not to be. In other words, the picture is of a person or a thing. That occupies the place that only God should occupy. It means to stand as a replacement of God or for a substitute of God. You'll remember that in the temple there was a series of courts. There was an outer court and an inner court. And within the inner court there was a court of priests. And then there was a holy place where the priests offered sacrifice. And then there was a holy of holies. The place where the very presence of God dwelt, where the Ark of the Covenant was established, if you will, where the high priest could only go in once a year and then only under the most of unusual circumstances to offer a sacrifice for the people. I believe that this is a reference in the far past, in the Immediate future when Jesus is making the statement and in the far future, this is a reference to the man of sin, the Antichrist, the one who will stand in the temple and he will declare himself to be the Messiah. He will declare himself to be the God of heaven and earth and the only being worthy of veneration. The issue is more than just Christ's concern about personal unbelief or even corporate unbelief. It is a universal worldwide attempt to replace God in his own temple so that all believers witness the event. And we see this from chapter 13, verse 4. Remember when Andrew, Peter, James and John, they asked the question. Andrew asked him privately, verse 4. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? The reference would have been understood by Jewish readers to mean the pollution of the Jewish temple by Gentiles in such a way that the temple could no longer be used as a place of worship. 
Remember, to the Jews, all idolatry is an abomination. Deuteronomy 29.17, 2 Kings 16.3. The Jewish temple, by the way, was defiled in 167 B.C. by the Syrian king Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV was also called Epiphanes. You can't see it on this picture of my coin, but on the opposite side of the coin is inscribed Epiphanes, which means God is with us. It was also understood to mean illustrious. He was a Syrian king, but he was also a descendant of Greek rulers. He was in love with all things Greek, with the Greek gods, with the Greek culture, with the Greek language. And so it was his desire that the Jewish people would come under his authority. They would adopt Grecian culture. They would adopt Grecian language. And so he established a pinnacle, if you will, on the outskirts of the temple to Zeus. And then he brought a pig into the place where the altar was kept. He cut the pig's throat and the pig's blood spilt everywhere. And then he walked in to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And he declared that he was the living Lord, that deity was present in his very flesh. And he outlawed Judaism and then he outlawed circumcision. One woman in particular, it's recorded in history, defied his order. She had a series of sons. And when she, she gave birth to her son, she ordered her son circumcised. And Antiochus Epiphanes killed every one of her children right in front of her. And then took the baby and slit its throat and took its umbilical cord and wrapped it around the woman's neck. And it created such an outrage that the Jews revolted. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. And they cleansed the temple and reinitiated the sacrifice. That in 167 BC. Later, after Jesus spoke these words, the, the, the armies of Rome would eventually surround the temple. It would be defiled by the Romans again. It was it, the, it, the city would be captured and destroyed. However, these events were only anticipations of a final abomination prophesied by Daniel in Daniel chapter nine, verse 27 and Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. So in order to understand the prophecy, I just have to give you a very brief, ever so brief understanding of chapter nine. Chapter 9 in Daniel deals with human history, Gentile history. The book collectively of Daniel is a book about the visions that Daniel receives of the relationship of the Jewish people to the Gentile people. It's the story of Babylon. It's the story of Persia. It's the story of Greece. It's the story of Rome. And in the ninth chapter, it hones in on a particular event. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel isn't celebrating his 20th or even his 30th or his 40th or his 50th or his 60th. He's he's celebrating his 60th year of captivity. Daniel is 90 years 
old. His hair is snow white and he has faithfully served God. And in Daniel chapter nine, verses 24 through 27, he receives a vision and a declaration from an angel. Daniel has the scroll of Isaiah, excuse me, Jeremiah in front of him. And Jeremiah, he has it turned to what you and I would call chapter 25, verses one through 14. He's pouring over Jeremiah's scroll. He's crying and he's praying out to God because the temple is gone. The temple has been destroyed. And every observant Jew in the morning would give prayers and at noon would give prayers and the evening they would offer the evening sacrifice. But there is no evening sacrifice. And so so Daniel offers his heart. He offers his prayer. He offers his very existence to God. And the Lord reveals something to him. The way the future is going to unfold for the Jewish people. You see, you have to understand that according to the Jewish law, the land, the land was to be set aside every seventh year, according to Leviticus chapter 25, verses one through seven. And then in the long laundry list of the Jews failing to observe the seventh year sabbatical, along with their rebellion, along with their disobedience, along with their idolatry, along with their hypocrisy, they were thrown into captivity. And so the people of Israel went into captivity one year for every sabbatical cycle that they failed to observe. And Daniel is now introduced to another set of Sabbaths or sevens. And if you look again in Daniel chapter nine, he says, seventy sevens are determined for your people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jew. And for your holy city. There's only one holy city on the earth. It's Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy. The 77s have to do with Daniel, his people, their city. The purpose is to fulfill a time period, the removal of sin, the bringing of righteousness. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that the anointing in the holy place in the temple is the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to reign in glory from his temple in Jerusalem. Now, let me give you a brief outline of the four hundred and ninety years that the angel assigns. Verse 25 signals an event that will trigger the 490 year decree. It's found in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 5, where Nehemiah is permitted and the Jews are permitted to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the city, not the temple. It's interesting that the last seven year period will be an agreement. A covenant with the Antichrist to protect the Jew. A decree at the beginning and a decree at the end. And by the way, history gives four different decrees relating to the Jews in Jerusalem. Cyrus gives a decree. Darius gives a a decree. Artaxerxes gives a decree. All make decrees concerning the rebuilding of the wall, the rebuilding of the city, the rebuilding of the temple. It's found in Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 6, Ezra chapter 7, Artaxerxes decrees that Nehemiah could return and build the walls of the city in Nehemiah chapter 2. 
By the way, this decree, we know from a historical standpoint, takes place in 445 B.C. It's the decree spoken of by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. By the way, when Daniel receives the vision and this decree takes place, it's fast forward 100 years into the future. 100 years into the future, Darius or Artaxerxes actually makes the decree 45, 445. Now, fast forward 483 years. There's two parts, a seven times seven, which is 49 years, and then 62 weeks or 62 times seven is 434 years. Why? It took 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem, as was done, the angel said, in troublesome times. If you don't believe me, read the book of Nehemiah. If you want to know what troublesome times looks like. 434 years later, we come to Messiah, the prince. We come to Palm Sunday, where Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, where they yell and scream and sing the song, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus is giving these words to Peter, James, John, Andrew, it was the day before yesterday. Hey, Peter, James, John, Andrew, do you remember what happened on Sunday? Well, this was that which was spoken of by Daniel, the prophet. Now, let me help you understand something. Messiah comes. The Messiah is cut off the death on his cross for the sins of the world. Jesus dies on the cross. He accomplishes those things that are listed in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. What happens after the death of Jesus? Why? His resurrection, of course. But do the religious leaders and the overwhelming population believe the message of hope? Do they receive Jesus? Do they go, wow, the prophecies are true. Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. No, they don't believe him. They don't believe Daniel. They persecute the messengers. They'll stone Stephen. They'll refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is both king and Lord. And the nation that cut off Messiah will soon be cut off when the armies of Rome march on the city. Fast forward into the future. There's a holocaust that takes place in World War II. In 1948, March 14th, the Jews gather from all over the world and the nation is reformed. And then something surprising, something amazing happens. Another war takes place. Jerusalem is reunited for the first time since its destruction in 1967. Rome is called the people of the prince who will come. Which is this prince? The prince of peace? The Messiah? No, this is not the Messiah. This is not the prince of peace. This is the Antichrist. He will be the leader of a restored Roman Empire. And I believe that the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was an illustration of a future invasion, a future destruction that could conceivably take place. In my lifetime, in your lifetime. And so between the death of Jesus and the final covenant by a future prince, we have an age. It's called the age of the church. It's the great parentheses 
that is in the middle. The 490 year period only elapses and it is only in operation as Israel acts according to God's will. The clock started ticking in 445 B.C. The clock stopped ticking in around 30 A.D. when Jesus died. So there's an outstanding period of time that's left. It's seven years. The seven-year period is known as the Great Tribulation. It's known as the time of Jacob's sorrow in the book of Jeremiah. It's described here in Mark's Gospel, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 19, in Matthew chapter 25. Some suggest that after three and one-half years, Gog and her allies will invade the Holy Land, Ezekiel 38 and 39. God will judge them. The Antichrist will invade the land. He will break the covenant that he will have set up as a world dictator, but in order to understand that you have to understand that a future ruler, a future political ruler will make a covenant of peace, securing Israel's safety. Because Israel will be terrified. Because there are nations that surround this country that will exploit it and will threaten its extinction And they will be living under such fear and such trauma and such terror that they will do anything. They will do anything. They will do anything to experience peace. And so during that covenant, I suspect that they will be they will remain unmolested. But there will come a time when this future prince, this future political world ruler will betray them. He will betray them and he will force his way into Jerusalem. He will force his way into the temple and he will declare unequivocally, positively, unmistakably that he is God in the flesh and the only one worthy of worship. And so now, when you look at verse 14, and you see that little parenthetical note where it says, let the reader understand. That's you. In order for you to understand, you have to understand Daniel. In order to understand Daniel, you have to understand Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Jesus is giving an explanation, but the writer of Mark is inviting the reader to consider what's going on. It is for a future generation that these events will take place. Nonetheless, Jesus gives a message to those who are living. Note, look what it says, living in, not in Littleton. It doesn't say, for those of you who are living in Littleton, for those of you who are living in Denver, flee to the foothills. No, it's Judea. The warning clearly would apply to an event that would take place in the immediate future. Jerusalem will be destroyed by the invading armies of Rome. The temple will be sacked and destroyed. But also, I'm going to suggest to you to a future population living in Jerusalem at the time of the end. And look what it says in the flight for life in verse 14. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Tragically, Those who were alive in Jerusalem during the time of the Roman invasion, they didn't heed the advice of Jesus. There were really two groups of people. 
The first group of people sought safety, security, sanctuary, protection. And so when their world started to come to an end, they rushed into Jerusalem in the hopes that its walls would protect them. According to Josephus, over one million Jews stuffed themselves into this city and they died not just of war, but of starvation and deprivation. Those who ignored the advice of Jesus were, for the most part, slaughtered, butchered, killed. In book four of Josephus, he describes the events, the sack of the city, the plunder of the treasury, the, 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 the extermination of the occupants. Then there was a second group that fled to a city called Pella. And Pella was a city that was located just east of the Jordan in the region that the New Testament refers to as the Decapolis. Those who went there and prayed and survived saw this come to fruition. Jesus warns about the urgency and the necessity of flight. Now, again, here Jesus says, You need to run, verse 15 and 16. The circumstances that would hinder flight, verses 17 and 18. The final deterrent to the hindrance of the flight, which we'll look at later, 21 and 22. But look at verse 15. Let him who is on the rooftop or the housetop not go down into the house nor enter in or take anything out of the house. In both ancient and modern Jerusalem, the houses have flat roofs. As a matter of fact, people would use the roof like an extension of their home. They will go to the top of the porch to relax, to barbecue, to pray. And the roof is accessible usually by an outside staircase. And therefore, you don't have to go back through the house in order to escape. But the picture that Jesus gives is a picture of jumping from rooftop to rooftop in order to finally make a suitable Retreat in verse 16, it says, and let whom is in the field not go back to get his clothes. In ancient times, workers would usually leave their outer garment at home. You would go off to work. You would have an inner garment and you would have an outer garment. The inner garment was the garment that you would use in order to conduct business. The outer garment was like a cloak. We might even think of it as as a cloak that could be used for, for resting, for sleeping, almost like a little mini sleeping bag. The danger is so great and the opportunity so limited and the problem so fearful that there's only one thing to do, and that's to run for your life. Jesus' advice is better to lose your clothes than to lose your life. And in verse 17, he says, but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies. In those days, the Lord extends a special consideration to expectant mothers. Why? Because they are physically vulnerable. Political, social, cultural upheaval is hard on everyone. For the prepared, for the physically fit, it's going to be difficult. But for those people who are vulnerable, for those people who are sick, for those people who are elderly, for those people who are pregnant, it's going to be a horrible time. And look what Jesus says, and pray that your flight may not be in winter. Some older New Testament manuscripts simply say, pray that this will not take place in winter. 
In Jerusalem, snow and ice and freezing frost usually aren't a problem, but every once in a while, it is a problem. Snow, ice, freezing make travel conditions difficult, if not deadly. And and Mark's gospel excludes something that is included in another gospel. In Matthew's gospel, in the very same passage in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, verse 30, Jesus there says, pray that your flight be not in winter. And then he adds, pray that it not be on the Sabbath. Some Sabbatarians have used that passage to imply that Christians must go to church on Saturday. But that has is absolutely a false application. He's talking about Jerusalem and he's talking about Judea and he's talking about the Jew. And why? Why is it a big, fat, stinking problem if this catastrophe takes place on the Sabbath? Because many observant Jews will not go. They will not run for their life. They would rather die than disobey the Sabbath. Mark's readers could care less. In this chapter, Jesus says, I'm warning you, take heed in verse 5, in verse 9, in verse 23, in verse 33. Don't be troubled, verse 7. Endure, verse 13. Pray, pray, pray your guts out, verse 18 and verse 33. Watch, watch, verse 33, 35, 37. We sang it in worship. We watch, we pray. When the Antichrist makes his appearance, the comforts of home won't matter. When the Antichrist shows up, personal possessions won't matter. When the Antichrist shows up, we grieve for the people who face physical limitations and travel restrictions and religious restrictions. And then Jesus says in verse 19, for in those days, what days? The last days. In in the days that's discussed from verse 4, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all those things are fulfilled? For in those days there will be tribulation. And tribulation is a word that's a graphic word in the Greek language. The idea is of a log that's covered with spikes that chews up everything in its past. It means A pressure that is so troubling and so destructive that nothing escapes. Jesus predicts, look what it says, in those days there will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the creation. Think about what Jesus is saying. The scriptures tell of a judgment in the past. I want you to think of the most catastrophic judgment that you can imagine in the past. What comes to your mind? The flood. The flood. But Jesus says, for in those days there will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning of creation. Think about Noah's generation. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about the inhabitants of Jericho. Think about the people who have suffered the most grueling of circumstances. And this passage in chapter 
13 verse 19 is almost word for word cited from Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 where Daniel writes, And there shall be a time of trouble such has never been since there was a nation till that time. A time? A time like no other time? And then he throws in a jab against the material and physical atheists who believe that the universe exists as some kind of cosmic accident with no rhyme and no reason. It's Jesus. Look, these are the words of Jesus. Since the creation which God created. Do you realize that Jesus believed that God created the universe? Jesus believes that. He created the heavens and the earth and everything in it and all of human history. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 21, verse 26, we read these amazing words. Luke 21, 26, men will faint from fear over the expectation of the things which are coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. In what day? Jesus is speaking of a future event. This is not an ordinary day of hardship. This is not an ordinary day of persecution. This is not an ordinary day of terror. This is an unprecedented time. And you'll note that the tribulation has a Jewish character. We read of the Jewish temple in verse 14. If you compare Matthew 24, 15 and the Jewish Sabbath of Judea, it's a Jewish place in verse 14. The time of Jacob's sorrow is Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, but it has worldwide global implications. And the church is conspicuous by her absence. Where is the church? Why aren't they there? This period is unique in timing and intensity. By the way, in my possession, I have a copy of a book called Palestine. The Coming Storm Center by Dr. Harry Rimmer. My copy is the third edition. It dates to 1941. The subtitle of the book is Shadows of Things to Come. He wrote this in 1940. He wrote, quote, Men are slow to learn the lessons of history. Six great powers have tried to exterminate Israel and one more outstanding attempt will yet be made, unquote. He was referring to a time of future tribulation. He was profoundly aware that Hitler would make an attempt to wipe out the Jew. Again, Dr. Rimmer, this is he's he's writing this in 1940, quote, the pharaohs tried in the 15th and 16th centuries B.C. The Assyrians tried to obliterate them in 775 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar made a notable event in 5. 88 BC. Haman followed with the plan in 510 BC. The next hopeful persecutor was Antiochus Epiphanes, who sought to blot out the Jews in 170 BC. The last great attempt to accomplish this hopeful plan of extermination of a great people was that of Titus the Great, who in 70 A.D. came closer to succeeding than any of his predecessors had. But the people of Israel are far more numerous today than they were when Titus began his efforts against them. When he wrote those words, there were 13 million Jews living in Russia and Eastern Europe. When he wrote these words, there were six million Jews that were scattered throughout the rest of the earth. When he wrote those words, there were less than 150,000 Jews living in what you and I would call Palestine or, or Israel. He writes these words. 
But the people of Israel are far more numerous today than they were when Titus began his efforts against them. And history should teach conquerors to keep their hands off the Jew. God has sworn that he shall never be blotted out as a people until his purposes have been accomplished through them. And this oath he will respect. And then he makes this amazing paragraph, quote, and now in this 20th century, we see the conquering Hitler engaged in the same ancient folly, fondly dreaming that he can blot out his people. He has set himself to wipe them out root and branch. And if he had his way, not one human being of Jewish lineage would be left alive on the face of the earth. Certainly he has been ardent and tireless in his merciless campaign. He has brought more misery and suffering on Israel than any man since Titus has been able to inflict. He has filled their days with terror, their nights with fear, but his vicious and inhuman conduct. He has turned the decent elements of humanity against him and has thus far failed in his purpose. Unquote. Remember, he's writing this in 1940. He's writing this in 1940, and in the next five years, Hitler will begin a program of extermination, and he will succeed in killing six million Jews and an additional three million human beings. And then Dr. Rimmer writes this amazing sentence, quote, All that Hitler has accomplished by his European-wide persecution may be summed up in a sentence. He has accelerated the return of Israel to Palestine, thus apparently hastening his own doom by driving the preserved people back into the preserved land. Hitler, who does not believe the Bible, who sneers at the word of God, is helping to fulfill its most outstanding prophecy and thus the wrath of men sometimes serve the purposes of God. In 1945, he will commit suicide and then order his attendants to pour gasoline on the body of him and his wife and then they will go up and smoke. Three years later, Israel will be declared a country. Look what it says in verse 20. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. God will shorten the days for the elect's sake. God's children will not be forgotten. The Lord will cause his angels to protect a remnant. In Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2, it says, even in the midst of wrath, God remembers his mercy. Because he has a plan. He has a purpose. It's preservation. William MacDonald writes, The vials of God's wrath will be poured out on the world in those days. It will be a time of calamity and chaos and bloodshed. In fact, the slaughter will be so great that God will supernaturally shorten the period of daylight. Otherwise, no one would survive. But the days will be shortened in order that God's elect remnant of Jewish believers will be preserved. Paul the Apostle was convinced. He was convinced that the predictions of Jesus would only take place at the end of time. Here's what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul writes, 
Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, what day? The day of Christ's coming shall not come except there's a falling away first. The man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Jesus believed it was a future event. Paul believed that it was a future event. And I'm here to tell you, I have studied every single decade of the first century. And this prophecy was not fulfilled with the coming of the Roman armies and the destruction of the temple. It has yet to be fulfilled. And so the Bible seems to indicate that the last days, the Antichrist will come. He will be possessed by Satan. He will endeavor to destroy all religion except one. The one that makes him the Lord. He will go to Jerusalem. He will demand that the sacrifices and the oblations cease. And he will demand that he be worshipped as God. And the Jews will refuse. And it will invite a war so bloody, so devastating. That unless God himself intervened. Human beings on the planet would cease to exist. And so the signs and the events seem like a laundry list of terror. Destruction of the temple, false messiahs, spiritual deception, world wars, earthquakes and famines, religious, political and familial persecution, and the notes of hope, worldwide preaching of the gospel, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the promise of peace by a man who pretends to be the Prince of Peace. But he will in fact plunge the world into a global war and set the stage for God's judgment. And now, the countdown to the coming of Christ has begun. Oh, but that's for a later date. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray that we will watch, that we will pray. Lord, we know that the most wicked, the most perverse, the most troubling thing, the most repugnant thing, the most detestable thing is when we provoke you by placing in the temple of our heart Something that is unworthy of honor and unworthy of praise and unworthy of worship. And Heavenly Father, we know that you are disgusted by false worship, false gods. Anything that would divide our loyalty, anything that would steal our affection, anything that would cause us to honor anything other than you. So, Lord, we pray that you would come into the Holy of Holies of our heart. That only Jesus is allowed there. Only he gets to rule and reign supreme. Only he gets the designation of master and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.